0: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to the fifth season of With Friends Like These. And yes, there are more seasons than years, just like America's Next Top Model. And much like your other beloved reality shows, we are changing things around the edges to keep it fresh. It's still the same show, we're just adding elements to keep you interested. Like Celebrity Chopped or Ink Master Rivals. Last time around, we explored the concept of what brought with friends like these into being. The impulse to convert our friends like these. This time, we're looking at another idea buried in that saying, with friends like these, who needs enemies. Good intentions. We're going to look at where the impulse to help people comes from and why it so often goes wrong. Much as in the last edition, we'll look at this from every angle we can. Neuroscientists who can tell us where altruism comes from in the brain, and psychologists on why some people are more heroic than others. We'll talk about white saviors and failed philanthropies, and we might tell you some stories behind some of the goals and projects that you believe to be good, but in fact are not good. We're kicking off with a talk about the brain science behind our impulse to do good. Leo Christoph Moore is a postdoctorate fellow at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. We talked about the human instinct for empathy and how easily it's perverted or blocked by experience and suggestion. Stay tuned for insight on the dehumanization of political opponents, the power of shared suffering, and a little something he likes to call the dictator game. Before we get started, some ads. BetterHelp is a treasured sponsor of With Friends Like These. What interferes with your happiness? <laughs> On the script here, it asks to add some personal experience. What isn't interfering with our happiness these days? I mean, waking up in the morning is interfering with my happiness these days. So maybe you, like me, need some help. Well, BetterHelp is here. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, making it so convenient you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. There's a broad range of expertise which may not be locally available in your area. Licensed professional counselors specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. BetterHelp can help. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp. Help. dot com slash friends. We are proud to have Hydrant as a sponsor of With Friends Like These. Drinking enough water is critical for a healthy lifestyle. It increases your brain power and boosts your productivity. It prevents headaches. It increases your focus. It improves your skin and your mood. It helps your digestion and gives you energy. It prevents bad breath and it might help you lose weight. Hydrant has created a refreshing electrolyte powder that you mix directly into water to more efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. It hydrates you quickly and keeps you going for longer. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs—sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc—and it packs a punch to help your body hydrate fast and stay hydrated. Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by an Oxford scientist— Made with real fruit juice powder, it's delicious, it's refreshing, and comes in a variety of flavors, including the new keto-friendly lemonade and pink grapefruit with no added sugar and only two grams of carbs. I am a fan of the keto-friendly—I'm not keto exactly, but I like, you know, watching the carbs, watching the sugar— Hydrant also has a new immunity line available in either lemon ginger or hot apple cider. It has over 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C plus B12, B6, and D, essential vitamins, minerals, and electrolytes with ginger and zinc. Strengthen your routine no matter what the season. It's total immune support. Plus, it's backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love it, send it back for a full refund. You need to try it to see what I'm talking about. It tastes incredible and it really works. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. Save even more money with a monthly subscription. And we've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com friends and enter promo code friends at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com slash friends and enter promo code friends for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash friends, promo code friends. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Hydrant, where water meets wellness. Now to the interview. Leo, welcome
1: to the show. Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you study?
1: Okay, well, I... I'm primarily interested in uh, basically studying high-level concepts or constructs like empathy or morality or consciousness, but trying to study them from what I'd call a, a bottom-up pers- perspective. So, trying to study them, started studying like how they emerge from the function and the architecture of the brain. Like we try to, we try to always keep things rooted in, you know, basic like somatomotor and emotional processes, um, instead, instead of, instead of starting like at high level kind of bubbles and then going down and seeing what, you know, how those relate to the brain, we try to do it from the other end. And, um, so that's, that's led me to study things like empathy and altruism, which are, which is arguably like the main focus of my work. Um, but it's also led me more recently to study things like, uh, yeah, like I said, consciousness, um, trust, um, you know, how, how empathy might work in artificial intelligences. Um, and I'm also really interested in um, art and, and the relationships between the two. So I'm an artist as well, but I'm also, I also think that art and neuroscience have a, lot to, have a lot of a shared history and have a lot to say to each other.
0: But I'm just curious. So empathy and altruism, these are these really high concept ideas. They're things that we think about as part of morality, as part of our interactions with others, but you study them in a lab. How do you do that?
1: Um, so it's, 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 it's certainly a little bit, it's certainly challenging. Um, I would say, let's start with the empathy part. The empathy part's a little bit easier to study because, um, we know that empathy involves, for example, you know, making mental models of other people, right? Like me imagining, you know, what is, what is my friend Paul thinking right now? What are his beliefs? What are his intentions? Um, and we do that all the time, sort of automatically. but there's another aspect of it which is you could call it the more like bottom up or some people call it the effective um, component of empathy i I like to call it the sort of resonance aspect of empathy, which is this more this automatic process by which we um, sort of just feel what others feel so if i if i see my if I see a friend of mine fall down and hit his knee, um I kind of I vicariously feel that pain slightly. I feel sort of a shadow of it Um, and emotions as well. So we're we're, we're going throughout the day sort of feeling what other people feel, but also making models of uh, making models of their intentions, right? So there's their their intentions, their beliefs and stuff. So there's sort of like the more cognitive and effective parts. And so you can study that, you know, not perfectly, um, but you can study that by, for example, putting someone in a brain scanner and then having them look at, Sort of social cartoons in which people are interacting and non and sort of non-verbally communicating their intentions. Like one task that we use in the lab now is you see, you know, for example, you see these cartoon vignettes and you choose the most appropriate outcome. So for example, you see two people and there's a tree with some apples on it, and they reach for apples, and then they and they turn and see, oh, there's a ladder against the wall. And one person starts walking towards the ladder. The, the next panel either has the person um, throwing the ladder off screen or bringing the ladder over to the tree, and so you kind of have, you're reading. So your task is to kind of read. Okay, well, what, what were what were they most likely trying to do based on the situation, right? And that's kind of like the men, the mentalizing we call it side of it. Um, so you can you can actually look at someone's brain activity while they're doing a task like that, um, or on the other end, and this is more related. This is more the kind of task that I that my work is based on. You can. Like, thankfully, like I said, it's it, this sort of resonance side of things, the mirroring side of it is somewhat automatic. So, what you can literally do is put someone in a scanner and then just show them um, videos, for example, of a hand getting, for example, stroked by a Q tip or injected with a hypodermic syringe, like receiving a painful stimulation. Or you can, for example, just look at people making emotional facial expressions. And what you'll find is the parts of the brain. That would be active if I um, were making a you know, make experiencing an emotion or making a, the, the associated expression, or if I were experiencing pain, also become act, active. And you can look at how that activation, that sort of resonance um response varies across individuals and across contexts, right? So that's the empathy side. So that's not that's not incredibly complicated, right? You're basically just putting people on a scanner and showing them images. Now. The altruism side of thing is actually com- complicated because, um, you know, the, the basic task we use is something called the dictator game. What the, the so the way the dictator game works is it's a variant on a thing called the ultimatum game, where you people another person decides how to how to divide up money between themselves and you, and you can decide to accept or reject the offer, right? And people look at that a lot. What we study is a variation on that called the dictator game. So in this one, what what happens is I'm, there's, there's, there's basically every trial I'm faced with a, with a person and I'm charged with deciding how to, how to divide up a sum of money between myself and the other person. And the key factor here is that that person can't accept or reject my offer. So I'm, I'm essentially dictating the terms of the share. And what you find with people is that they, um, even though there's no real motivation there to give, To give any money right because they can just keep all the money if they decide to keep it there's no there's really no consequences for 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 doing so but you'll find that people tend to give non-zero offers so they 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 still tend to share the must share at least some of the money with other people um but you know people have argued well like maybe that's just the effect of reputation maybe the maybe they they maybe even unconsciously they're thinking well you know if, if other people see that I'm being incredibly selfish, then that's going to affect my reputation. Or maybe if I interact with this person in the future, they're going to remember that I was, you know, that I was selfish with them. And so they won't, they won't, um, you know, so and so they won't share back with me in the future. It'll affect reciprocity. Um, so the challenge with us in designing a kind of version of this game that could actually look at real altruism um, was to try to make a version of it that that controlled for those factors. So what we did is we actually, I actually designed this back in, um, back in college um, where my interest started with a, a neuroeconomist at Duke University called, uh, named Scott Hutel, And what, the way we designed it was in this game, you're sharing the money with other people, but they're not physically in the room with you. They're just photographs that are essentially avatars that represent real people in the community. Um, who actually get the money. So first of all, we made the stakes real, right? Because if it's just a video game, then how can you say that you're actually tapping into the real sort of mechanisms by which the brain does this? So we let people know that we are not allowed to lie to them. They know that their money that they give will go to real people. But then importantly, they know that they're gonna do it in a closed room, unobserved. So no one's gonna know what they did. All the decisions are gonna be anonymous. No one's gonna look at their data that ever met them or was present the day they came into the lab. Um, and, uh, and so basically that removes a lot of the risk of reputation. It removes a lot of the strategic components that might be there. They know that they can be as selfish as they want. We gave them every out to be selfish. Um, and so if you, so, and our idea was, well, if you give someone every opportunity to be selfish and then they still decide to share money with a stranger, then that, probably maps on even roughly onto the you know the, the, the altruistic impulse
0: I kind of want to dive right into so what do people do when there's a guarantee that they won't be judged how altruistic are people
1: surprisingly altruistic um, I, I, I found that so one one thing I should add is the the people that they were giving money to we wanted to look at the effect of context because we think context is, is one of the main sort of things that modulate like they modulate empathy or modulate, or more 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 specifically pro-sociality, the 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 desire to help one another, um, which we think arises from empathy. That's kind of the central thesis. So they're faced they're faced with people who are either low or high income. So some of the subjects some of the people they were playing with made you know two hundred grand and above, and then uh, and then half the people made you know like twenty to thirty grand a year. Um, we found that most people, And I'm and I I mean like you know sixty to seventy percent of people would give anywhere between like three and five dollars out of ten to the to the poor subjects, and some people would give more. So some people would give more than half of the money. Um, And then you know, and you you'd think, okay, well that's fine. They're 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 giving money to people who maybe need it. But how about the the rich subjects? Okay, like why would any why would why on earth if the if no one's going to know what you did. Any money you give is less money you get, and the person makes upwards of two hundred thousand dollars a year. Why would you give them any money? And still, still, people on the whole didn't give didn't give zero dollars. So, about about half did, but a lot. But people would still give often um, some of the money. Some people would still give half of the money. They would still make an equal share between themselves and this person who made maybe. Five times as much as they did because most of the subject were, uh, you know, university students, um, and we and we we thought that 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 alone was is is an interesting finding, right? That we still we still have trouble, sort of completely discarding the welfare of another person, even if we have no strategic reason to, even if the person is much more well off than we are. It kind of it kind of it goes against. Um, It goes against certain uh, concepts of of of, you know of humans as just inherently selfish, self-maximizing beings, which I think is uh, not really true.
0: So that reminds me of something that I read when I was looking around on this subject before we talked, which is that that resonance um, piece where we connect with others, where we uh, automatically mirror other people sometimes literally right like that there's some of there's evidence that we literally like do the same facial expressions do the same gestures that kind of thing
1: and we we even do it at a we even do it in a a sub-threshold way like you might not know you're doing it and you wouldn't even notice you wouldn't even know unless someone puts some electrodes on the muscles in your face but you're actually yeah you're you're mimicking other people around you a lot more than you think
0: Yeah. And that that is something that has to be actively worked against, kind of like if left to like if, if we weren't thinking about it, we would just kind of again, maybe sub threshold, maybe not thinking about it. But it's a, it's a, just a human instinct to mirror the people around us.
1: Instinct's an interesting word for it. I think um, it, it it's just a kind of, uh, it's like a, it's a reflexive mechanism. I think, I think that that fits in the sense that it's not something we, it's not something we have to like work on and remember to do quite the opposite. You know, if I forget who said this, but it was once said, uh, when left to their, you know, when left to their own devices, people will imitate each other. It's a very, 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 uh, deep seated mechanism that we have, um, be- between ourselves. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's and it's actually, it's automatic, it's automatic in the sense that it's, uh, it's something that you have to sort of have to consciously inhibit if you want to not do it. Um, What's interesting, actually the, the, what we've studied a lot is how, even though it's automatic, it seems to be heavily modulated by context. Like even though, even though it's automatic, even though you don't, we don't think about doing it, we don't do it. We don't resonate the same with everybody, right? Where we resonate much more with, we mirror people much more who we perceive to be similar to us ourselves, or who we like, or who we trust, or who we affiliate with, or who we're told are trustworthy. Um, so the implication of that. So here's where it's here's where it gets kind of thorny. The implication of that is that if someone is able to convince you that another person or another group of people is unclean, dissimilar from you, or um, untrustworthy. Right, that they're that they're they're shady. Um, If someone can convince you of that, then not only will that change, you know, your (coughs) sorry your conscious beliefs about them, right, the things that you could talk about and report about consciously, um, the things you know about yourself, but it'll also influence deeper things that you aren't aware you're doing. Right, it'll make it'll essentially make you mirror mirror them and resonate with them less. So you won't feel their pain the same way. You won't feel their emotions the same way. Which means you'll also have less sort of fine grained insights into what they're feeling. You'll essentially it help it, it you essentially put up a kind of an empathic block between you and that person by just telling me the right things about a group of people or about uh, a person. My brain might literally mirror like mirror them differently or less. So it'll it'll it'll, it'll, it'll it it the effects of that will go deep down into. Deeper levels of my brain and deeper aspects of how I interact with that person. So it can it essentially that dehumanizing at a top down level can create you know dehumanizing at a deep neural level, right? Where we literally do not respond to them in the same way.
0: If someone directs you in this way to uh, be judgmental and suspicious of another group of people or a specific person. That thing where you show somebody being uh, poked with a hypodermic needle—do they respond less? Is that something that's been looked
1: at? Um, if, if you tell someone, so there's two. There's two different studies. One looked at um, these sort of em, these empathic pain responses, like you know, empathic response to the pain of others. Uh, when you tell someone that someone is of a different uh, sports team than they are, or a different right so there was this was done with us with soccer fans i believe in italy or germany i don't recall and and they found that yeah you that that people's that, that their neural responses just to the physical pain of another person just the basic again this is like a very automatic not really thought through conscious process just the basic way that their brain internally simulated the pain of the other person was heavily modulated by Just this, 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 this—you know—actually, minor fact about them, which is, what sports team do they support? Um, And there was also there was also a study done where they would, you know, let you know that the other person was in pain, right? And they look at your brain, but you don't know anything about this person. Then you, they would create a situation where you watch the other person behave in an untrustworthy manner, and sure enough, they then did the same task again, where they see that the other person's in pain, and they found that people's the same thing that that empathic that mirroring response was diminished so you can you can actually you can see this at the level of these basic mirroring responses the, the the influence of what should be you know very like high level conscious things like observation of behavior or you know your your perception of the moral character of someone and that that has really troubling the the really troubling implications of that is that we make a lot of our decisions about how much we care about other people based on The kind of bottom-up signals we get about how much their welfare matters to us. Then it's not that I—it's not that my conscious beliefs about them are necessarily what's driving this. It's just that when I now see someone getting shot with tear gas or dragged into a car, it's just not going to move me the same way it would someone who I decide that I trust and care about. Like it's not going—it's not going to drive me to go on social media. It's not going to drive me to call the police department. It's not going to drive me to, you know, feel feel outraged and motivated and so and 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 part of the problem you know that arises from that is that when we get you know different sides in a debate arguing with each other over these events the problem is that when you if, if they're arguing over the same video they're not seeing the same video in terms of the emotional content of that video they're not seeing the same thing at all
0: breaking in very quickly to keep the show going in general got some ads with Friends Like These is brought to you by Blinkist. I am probably not the only person these days that feels like I would like to be able to lock my phone in a safe every once in a while. And yet at the same time, so much is happening. How am I supposed to do anything without my phone, without all those alerts? So here's a, here's a helpful hint. I've been reading books that are relevant to today's news. There are a lot of them. And the way that I sort of cheat, well, it's not cheating. It's totally appropriate. Blinkist allows me to read all of those books in about the same time it would take me to doom scroll on Twitter. I can actually get some substance and some context for what's going on today without getting plugged into the highs and lows of our daily news cycle. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, on your tablet, or your web browser. So you can put your phone away. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can either read or listen to. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers as well as classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. What I've been using Blinkist for is to read all of those books about Trump or to get the key takeaways from all of the Dozens of books about Trump that have been out there, and especially books about impeachment, because that came and went so fast. So there's things like Impeachment and American History, Crime and in Progress Inside the Steel Dossier, The Accidental President, Russian Roulette by Michael Isakoff and David Korn, and of course, it has books by friend of the pod Rick Wilson, and it has Dan Pfeiffer's Untrumping America. So get up to speed and get some context without the highs and lows of the doom scroll. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash with friends. And try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist. It's spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash friends to start your free seven-day trial. And 25% off your subscription. But only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by HBO. Agents of Chaos, HBO's new two-part documentary from Emmy and Academy Award-winning director Alex Gibney, offers a timely and revealing look at Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The film features in-depth interviews with key players going on the record for the first time, extensive research into the controversial Trump-Russia dossier that follows thread after thread of Trump's murky Russian involvements and never-before-seen footage inside Russian troll farms, the factories of disinformation and chaos that sparked a new age of political cyber warfare. Agents of Chaos digs into how the Russian machine and its American cogs worked to manipulate the American public and undermine democracy, sounding a poignant alarm ahead of the 2020 election that history could very easily repeat itself. Part 1 and 2 are streaming on HBO and HBO Max. Welcome back. When people see others as less than human, or see that others as different, it's it's almost like that has to be engineered. Like that has to be something that's brought into the equation because naturally we tend to tend to mirror and tend to like the pro-social instinct. That instinct again. I, I I assume that's kind of a maybe not the perfect word, but we are pro-social until we learn not to be?
1: So, well, yes and no. So we do, you know, we have this reflexive tendency to react, you know, vicariously to the states of others. That doesn't necessarily, particularly, you know, as we're developing, you know, in childhood, that doesn't necessarily drive us to help the other person because it could be question, how do you know that this vicarious distress you're feeling at another person's pain is actually happening to them and not happening to you? There, there's a lot of different sort of theorized subcomponents of empathy, and we've been mostly talking about empathic concern, right? Concern for others driven by empathy. Um, but there's another aspect called personal distress, which is the just the that's vicarious feelings of distress caused by another person's suffering, right? And this is something that you see... Um, I'd say more often in early childhood, but obviously it's a a tendency that extends throughout life. And um, the problem with personal distress is that if, unless you're encouraged to, to understand that what's happening is happening to someone else and not to you, then your response to another person's suffering might be simply to avoid the situation. or to to shut your eyes or to turn away.
0: But yes, is this connection between empathy and altruism? Because what I feel like I just heard from you was there's not necessarily always a connection. Like you can feel something for somebody and not actually really give a shit, maybe.
1: (laughs) Sure. So the best, the most illustrative example I can give is there were these studies done on children. uh, So young young toddlers aged, I think, uh, three to five um, when they're just starting to really develop a concept of other people as separate beings that are different from them um, and they would show these toddlers they'd have them in a room and they'd they'd show uh, they, they'd see another t- toddler crying and then the, the, the researchers would without interfering watch the way the toddler responded to the other toddler crying um, and they found that there's sort of two kinds of responses in one the toddler would get get distressed themselves they'd start crying too and they'd maybe even crawl away or they'd go sit in a corner they basically was a very self-focused response right this personal distress response or they would look at the, the the other toddler crying they would actually get visibly calmer and approach the other toddler and actually try to comfort them, maybe share food or a toy with them and try to help them stop crying. Right. So these two, these two responses you could think of as different ways that the, that the altruism car can work, even if it's driven by the same motor, right? There's still this, they're still responding vicariously to the other person's distress, but what that motivates is different. And the deciding factors seem to be, um, the extent to which their parents emphasized the taking of other people's perspective, the extent to which their parents did exercises with them, like, how do, how do you think this made Sally feel when you took her ball? How would you feel if this happened? You know, the extent to which they encouraged them to put themselves in another person's shoes seemed to dictate the extent to which they would be driven to actually help the other person. This is a really, really important um factor here. Like um feeling empathy isn't enough. You have to also understand that this vicarious response you're having. Is, is caused by another person's suffering it's not happening it's not about you it's not happening to you so sort of mature the, the transformation of empathy into altruism I think in large part um, relies on this being able to understand that the source of our vicarious pain is someone else and hence the person we should help is them not help ourselves.
0: This idea of the imaginative leap that one has to make to inhabit the other person's shoes right? The what you're talking about, the, the way that parents might emphasize, how do you think this person feels? I guess what I was thinking, because I was trying to think about how it is that, that when we do try to help people, we wind up messing it up somehow, right? And I was wondering if maybe it's because we t- put too much of ourselves in it, you know? We don't quite make that imaginative leap to imagine the other person what they need, what they want. And it's instead we're thinking well this is what i would need what i would want
1: no i mean that's i mean that's that's another that's actually a very important aspect of the perspective taking thing i was talking about right is really taking another person's perspective means understanding that they're not the same as you right and that's that's part of that's part of mature empathy right so the um, this is actually something i have talked about a lot with my partner and with um, a lot of my close friends is that it's not enough to just have this internal, you know, you could think of it like a neural golden rule, right? Like I don't, I try to, I try to encourage the things that I would, that I would like, I like, you know, I try to treat others like I would like to be treated and not harm them in ways that I would not like to be harmed, right? And that's all, that's all well and good. But if you don't have a good model of the other person, then you, right, your conceptions of what is good or what is benevolent might not apply to the person. In fact, they may run counter to their interests, right? If you, if you see someone who's sad and your first thought is, you know, if you have this, if if you have a very limited, if you're a very self-focused person, very limited thing, you're like, well, uh, maybe they're hungry. I mean, I'm hungry. And so you offer them food and you weren't, you weren't taking the time to notice that no, they, they're crying, they're sad and they're maybe, Maybe there's a maybe there's a ring lying, a, a, you know, a ring lying on the seat next to them. Like you, you have to really, you have to you be careful about the models you make of other people because you're being motivated to help is not enough.
0: Last ad break, I promise. We love Made to Fail, a podcast that is a sponsor of With Friends Like These. A broken unemployment system in Florida, crowded elections in Wisconsin during a global pandemic. Rampant political corruption in Georgia. These failures didn't have to happen. A new podcast, Made to Fail, connects the dots between these government failures and pulls back the curtain on the conservative policies that time and time again have failed the people they claim to protect. Made to Fail takes you state by state through the policies, programs, and systems that have let us down. You'll hear from the people and families who have suffered because of these failed policies and the experts who've been studying these issues every step of the way. As it turns out, these failures, they weren't by accident at all. They were by design. And if we're going to find our way out of this crisis, we need to know how we got here. Get the full story. Download Made to Fail today wherever you get your podcasts. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Ritual. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. And that's why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Kat Schneider and her team of scientists at Ritual are making clinically tested a new normal. Not only have they obsessively researched each nutrient in their visionary women's multivitamin, carefully choosing forms that are absorbable by the body— They've also tested their formula. Science-backed isn't a buzzword for them. It's the standard. Ritual left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. And they're committed to showing you their nutrients, where they came from, and why they chose them. They call it traceability. I like to think of it as transparency because the pills themselves are a little transparent. And I've often talked about what I love about Ritual. I love that it's easy on your stomach. I love that you get a fresh, minty smell when you open the bottle. And here's an actual super substantial thing. Uh, So antidepressants are boosted uh, by folic acid, or that's a theory that doctors have shared with me. And I usually buy folic acid separately. Guess what? A really good version of folic acid is in Ritual. One less pill for me to take. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off their first three months. Try it out, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. So one of the weird things that I've had to get to used to this year, I mean beyond masks and social distancing and whatnot, is coming to terms with the fact that I am a small business and I am a job creator. I have people that work for me. And for the past six months, I have only dealt with those people via Zoom. I am a Zoom boss. That's hard enough. I can't imagine what it would be like to hire someone new right now. Anyway, maybe you can relate, to Monica Starks could relate. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. Which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That is how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her around five minutes after she posted her job because he was a great match for the role. Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right, free. at ZipRecruiter.com friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com friends. F-R-I-E-N-D-S. That's right. ZipRecruiter.com friends. No more enjoy to the end because we've been talking about the ways that you you limit empathy right and you 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 block that gate and it sounds like you know some some of this is learned some of this is has to do with like our imaginative capabilities right and what we learned in that realm Uh, how does that get undone how do people become more empathetic is
1: it possible I think people can become more empathetic, but the roots to that may not be straightforward. Um, so, you know, because you you, you you might think off the bat, like, okay, let's say let's say you're trying to encourage two groups of people to empathize with each other again, um, people who maybe be going to hate each other or distrust each other. Um, you know, the, the, the most obvious straightforward solution would be, you know, we we'll just tell them, hey, no, but these, these people are all right, they're good. Da-da-da-da. Um, but no, but but that doesn't that doesn't seem to work. What does seem to be more what may be more effective is to kind of subtly, you know, encourage the person to come to those insights on their own using using a, what's called like an embodied perspective. So, you know, actually encourage actually doing thought exercises where the person tries to literally inhabit the position of another person and take their and take their perspective. I think, I think can be helpful. So there was a study done in which they looked at different techniques for creating bonds of, you know, friendship and uh, and affiliation and camaraderie between troubled adolescents in a reform school. And it was a rural reform school and there was lots of areas to, to, you know, run around and do exercise and things like that. And they found that The, you know, getting them to do talk therapy with each other didn't really work. Um, I forget all the different approaches they tried, but that, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy wasn't very effective. They found that far and away, the most effective way to get these people to start trusting and liking each other and engaging with each other and forming, you know, relationships with one another was to have them all engage in a single coordinated task. Like you, you get five boys and you tell them, all right, see that big log? I want you to move that log to the other side of the river. So they're not doing, they're not talking to each other. They're not doing anything that should be involved, like whether they become friends or anything. But just the very act of engaging in this sort of basic motor coordination they have to do to do that um, started to create a bond at the other levels, right? And which again brings us back to this idea that all these levels are connected, right? If you tell me from the top down level, this person is dissimilar. They're from a different group than you. They're not trustworthy that propagates downwards to these deeper levels and makes me actually feel less what they feel, but it can go in the other direction. That's one of the really, that's the, the really encouraging thing is that if you create this bond between me and another person by having us engage in like coordinated behavior, or maybe, maybe we'll experience the pain, the same pain at the same time or the same joy at the same time, right? Like sharing a meal or um, enjoying a concert together then that can propagate upwards and create a sense of, hey, maybe me and this other person aren't that different. Maybe our world views aren't that different. Maybe our values aren't that different. So it can propagate in both ways. And so what, what that suggests is that maybe maybe restoring empathy isn't just about talking to people and convincing them and arguing with them and scolding them. That Maybe part of it is kind of use the back door, kind of use the bottom up, like get them to you know, try and, you know, play a game where they have to cooperate together to achieve a common aim. You know, maybe play a video game together, maybe cook a meal together, maybe share a meal together. Some experience that has something that causes them to have a correlated experience in time. I mean, I think I think this is why hazing, which, you know, a lot of people don't understand hazing. And I'm not really, I'm not a fan of it, but I'm saying you can't deny that it's effective in creating bonds, right? And I think the reason for that is that you get a bunch of people together, and you have them all experience terrible distress and pain at the same time. So what that creates is at this deep neural level a sense of similarity between you and the other person because you've had this shared experience, and now you're in, 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 in brought into a group where everyone you know that everyone has had that same experience as you. Um, so I'm not saying we should haze everybody, but um, you know if we can if, 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 we, if we can find ways for us to have more shared experiences, I think. That could be a sort of backdoor way to 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 increase empathy or sort of bring down bring down those empathic barriers between people.
0: We don't see things the same. So for some people, 2020 has been a story of uh, social justice um, and a fight against authoritarianism uh, and caring for people who need to be cared for and trying to together fight back against a disease that wants to kill us. For another set of people, 2020 has been about you trying to make me wear a mask, you uh, protesting and, and, and being violent, uh, and you not supporting this great man who I believe to be a savior. The positive way of looking at it is I think there's more shared than not.
1: At least in, 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 in living memory for anyone I've spoken to. Um, the entire world is experiencing something at the same time. That is, that has never happened in living memory where the, in, like, the, like the, the, this, this virus, and yeah, there, of course there are people who believe it's a hoax, there's people, you know, but yes, there are different reactions to it, but this virus is something that has a, this virus and like the different measures that have followed it have literally affected virtually every person on earth. And it's, a, it's this one common experience. And I think. Um, some of the most heartwarming, you know, parts of the the averse of the internet is how you see memes from every corner, conservative and liberal, just talking about what a what a terrible year this has been. Like, the sense of the sense of common suffering, I think, is, pal- is palpable, and everyone can identify with it.
0: And let's end our conversation there on that sense of shared suffering. Leo, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank
0: you. I hope this wasn't a, a sense of shared suffering for you.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> it was a, a good way, a good middle part of the day.
0: And that is it for the show. You know, when this show started, it was mostly just me and it was a good show. It is no longer just me and it's a much better show. So, literally, credit where credit is due. With Friends Like These is a production of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Lily Alexandrov. Izzy Margulies is our research intern and Liam McMahon does the social. Karen Qualley engineered this episode. Whitney Pasturek knows what she did. Thanks to them. Thanks to you. And take care of yourselves.